When a storm seems to rage or the road's been too long, when the darkness just won't break to morning, on your knees you will find there is sweet peace of mind that only the Father can give. So let's go to That's pretty good advice, isn't it? Amen? It's real good advice. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We won't need the uh, thing tonight. We're good on that. Thank you. Mark chapter 1, verse 16. 
again, just kind of kicking off uh, uh, the, the, the lesson, basically, that's turned into a series. <laughs> it's been going a while, hasn't it? That's all right. Mark chapter 1, <clears throat> beginning in verse 16, we note here the Bible says, Now, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. Well, we've been addressing this issue of you become who you follow. You become who you follow. And uh, along the way, we've talked about a number of things. What we recognize and understand is that becoming is a process. And it takes time. And yet, who you follow will, depend, will determine who indeed or what indeed you become. Now, <clears throat> we asked a question a few weeks ago. We said, what concrete benchmarks help us evaluate our fellowship? I mean... Who are we really fellowshipping with? That was really the question we were trying to understand and answer. And we took some time to go through the book of 1 John and look at a few examples of behavior, if you will, that reflect a fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Walking in the light, we said. Love the brethren. Love not the world. A compassionate and giving spirit receiving answers to prayer, his commandments are not grievous, avoiding idols, all of those things help us to identify whether or not we're really following the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, then we continued on and we said, you know, we ought to continue to use those as a gauge to determine our true state of fellowship with God. But now we want to evaluate how close we really are to the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we do that? Okay, we already kind of looked at, you know, who are we really fellowshipping with? Now, we ask the question, how do we identify how close we really are? I mean, what's the test? And we said that the test would be how closely we are to being conformed to the image of his son. So conformity becomes the real uh, element there. Are we conformed to the image of Christ? Because that will help us to understand how close we really are to Jesus Christ. And so we began talking about that, and we addressed it last week, and we started, if you would, turn to Romans 8, 29, because we're going to continue with this, uh, this, this vein of thought, and again, we recognize the idea and the thought that God's goal for every one of his children is the exact same. He wants us all to be conformed to the image of his dear son. Look what it says in Romans 8, 29. <clears throat> For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. You know, there, there are those that have really mixed up or rested the scriptures in these areas. You know, you look at this and it's who he did foreknow. Well, okay, uh, they kind of dismiss that idea, but hold on, who also, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Then they'll say, well, the truth is, is that before you were ever born, God knew you and he predestinated some for this, predestinated some for that. Some to go to heaven, some to go to hell. Some to be conformed, some not to be conformed, whatever it might be. Let me tell you something. 
That, that's, a, that's a misunderstanding of the scriptures. And it's a misapplication. That's not what he's distressing. That's not what he's talking about. Listen, um, he foreknew those that would be saved. He already knew whether you would receive and accept him as your Lord and Savior. He's not, I mean, he's God. He knew that. And he predestinated. He predetermined that you're to be conformed to the image of his son. I'm telling you, everybody that names the name of Christ is to be conformed to the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many believers. This isn't talking about Calvinism. This isn't reinforcing that idea that God picks and chooses who he's going to apply the blood of Christ to. Or that the blood of Christ is only efficable for the chosen. That's not what this is about. So nonetheless, to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, is nothing new. That is exactly what God intends for all of us. And you know what? The level in which we are conformed will ultimately reveal how closely we are fellowshipping with Jesus Christ then. To be conformed means to to reduce to a likeness or correspondence in manners, opinions, or moral qualities. And so... We talked about that a little bit and we said, okay, so Christ's conduct, his views, his morality are to be visible in each of us. And so we asked the question, we said, what does being conformed to the image of Christ look like in attitude then? How does it it appear? If we're truly conformed to the image of Christ, what will our attitude look like? How will it sound? How will it be perceived and understood? Well, we looked at Jesus' attitude in Matthew 11, 29 that said, I am meek and lowly in heart. And we said, if that's the case, then if Jesus is meek and he is lowly, then we ought to express and demonstrate those same qualities and characteristics in our attitude. To be meek, mild of temper, not easily provoked or irritated, lowly, meaning humble, meek, or free from pride. That ought to be, uh, those ought to be benchmarks in our life if Jesus Christ is really the one that we're following and if we're truly close to him. We said there were some thoughts about humility. First of all, we noted that early on in Scripture, we're warned about pride. We said that there's truly, um, you know, one of the secrets to success is the fact that we're to be humble. That's, that's one of the main things. We talked about God's plan is that submission start early in our lives and continue in adulthood. And then we said, boy, I'll tell you what, it's important to remember always that God resists the proud but lifts up and exalts those who humble themselves before him and man. So we said, well, what does being conformed to the image of Christ look like in attitude? Tonight, I want to start by saying or asking, what does being conformed to the image of Christ look like in action then? What's it look like in action? Take your Bible, look over to Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Acts chapter 10, verse 38. I mean, we could have used a number of scriptures here, but I think we're just going to try to, because of the, 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 the limit of time that we have, we're just going to focus our attention on this one verse and pull out a few ideas, few thoughts tonight. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. Thank you for these that have gathered. May you speak to our hearts through your word. We know, Father, without you we can do nothing. So, Father, now we pray that you would apply your truths to our lives. May we be, Father, encouraged by the word of God. May we be inspired to live like you, to be closer to you and more like you. Lord, may we not be content to simply be mediocre 
in our Christianity, but may we choose to be all in. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So Acts chapter 10, verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. We say, what in the world does it look like uh, to, you know, if we're in the image of Christ? How does the, you know, what, uh, what does being conformed to that image look like in action? Well, first of all, it's possessing the Holy, Holy Spirit power. We see it right off the bat. It says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with, Holy, with the Holy Ghost and with power. I'm going to tell you, what we're talking about is if we're truly conformed to the image of Christ, and, and that is how we act, and it's, in, and it's how we express ourselves, then there's going to be evidence of Holy Spirit power in our lives. I mean, that's, that's a reality of it. If that's what was in Christ's life, and we're conformed to the image of Christ, then that ought to be what is evident in our life, in our activity, in our actions. He says in Ephesians 5, 18, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now listen, you know, when you think about being drunk with wine, and some of you unfortunately have experienced it, and the fact is, is this, is that you understand that it controls you. You don't control it. Now anybody that's ever been on drinking anything and has ever drank enough, and it don't take that much to start feeling the effects of alcohol, you know that it begins to affect you. They know that it affects it, and it impairs your ability to respond and react. It, it affects your, your, your movements and your actions, your speech. It affects your sight. It affects, your, your, just like you say, your cognitive abilities. If you drink enough, it'll ultimately put you in a stupor even. The fact is, is that alcohol controls you. You don't control it. And may I say that when God uses this as an example, he understands that he's talking to a people who have a little bit of experience with this. And they understand it a little bit. And may I say you don't have to get drunk to understand that drinking impairs your abilities. All you have to do is look around you and recognize all the people that have died in car accidents and have been maimed and messed up simply because of alcohol. You don't have to drink alcohol and feel the effects of alcohol to know that it affects you completely and that it controls you because all you have to do is look at every example around you. And he's saying to us, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess because anytime you're drunk, it's excess because it's now controlling you. You're not controlling it. Instead, you ought to be, as he says, filled with the Spirit. That means the goal is, is that even as alcohol affects us and it may impair us, in this case, the Holy Spirit of God affects us as well and not impairs us, but ultimately affects us directly. Amen. The question is, how visible or how... Um, recognizable is the Spirit of God in your life. I mean, honestly, if you drank about two beers, you would start to feel the effects of alcohol real quick. Let me ask you, do you feel the effects of the Holy Spirit in your life on a daily basis? If that's the, the, the analogy that God's giving us, then there must be a tangent, or there, I mean, there must be a correlation between the two somehow. There ought to be a means by which we can tell that God the Holy Spirit is controlling us. Let me ask you, when that guy cut you off last week, did, it, did the Holy Spirit affect you or not? Or did your flesh control you? 
And let me tell you, you may have felt the desire to go off and be angry and maybe even express yourself in an unholy way, but my friend, the Holy Spirit of God said, you're a Christian and you don't do that no more. That's the Holy Spirit controlling you. And the Lord Jesus Christ was controlled by the Spirit of God. He was God, you say. He didn't need the Spirit. And yet the Bible says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. Do you know there had been no power in the life of Jesus Christ as a man without the Holy Spirit of God? And there is no power in our lives without the gift of the Holy Ghost, not just living in us, but allowing Him to be expressed through us. Possession of the Holy Spirit and power. Galatians 5.22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. I mean, all we need to do is look at this passage in the book of Galatians and begin to evaluate our Christianity, evaluate our attitude and our outlook, our actions and our, 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 our activity. And we say, wait a second, do I express myself the way the Bible says, in love? I mean, not just my love, but the Spirit of God, God's love for, toward people. Do I experience and do I exhibit joy in my life? Do I experience and exhibit peace in my life? Do I experience and exhibit long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance? And you say, that's not a part of my life. My friend, then the Holy Spirit of God is not controlling your life. The flesh is. And the Bible teaches us if we walk with God and if we'll commune with God, and as the Bible says, if we'll abide in Jesus Christ, then we will become like him. And the closer we get like him, the more evident these evidences will be. Possession of the Holy Spirit and power. Number two, he goes on to say here, who went about doing good. If we indeed are 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 acting as Jesus Christ did then we're going to possess we're going to be possessing the holy spirit power and the holy uh, holy spirit and power we're going to be going about doing good as well if we're doing good that means we're opposing bad we're opposed to the bad things and we're putting others first we're doing things that are positive and productive for others as well doing good we think about Jesus Christ doing good Let's go ahead and ask a couple questions. If you think about Jesus Christ doing good, give me an example of that from the scriptures. Anybody? Jesus doing good. Somebody, raise a hand. Don't just yell it out. Raise a hand. Let me, yeah, right there. He went around healing. That's something good to do if you have the ability to do, right? I mean, I think that would be. If I could heal people, I can imagine, I'll be honest with you, I think my first stop would be down at the children's hospital. I think that'd be the first place I'd go. And to be honest with you, I don't think I'd get a whole lot of sleep if I could heal people. Because then I'd be running right over to the hospital and then the next one and the next one. And I'm going to tell you, it wouldn't be long before everybody in this this area would start to call me day and night wanting me to stop by their home. But going about doing good, can you imagine how busy Jesus Christ was doing good, healing people? What else? What else did he do? Not just heal. Yeah. He, would, he fed people that were hungry. He fed those that were hungry. Not, and then listen, can, okay, I, I don't want to make any enemies here, okay? But let me tell you something. These weren't lazy people. 
He fed people. They weren't just out there trying to. Now, I got to admit, I think some of them did want just the food because they followed Jesus because they wanted just the food. I got to admit. And there's always people that hang around church because they want to get something. You know what I mean? I mean, they got the bread store down here. Some of you only come for the bread. Not the manna from heaven either. <laughs> I'm messing with you. But man, I mean to tell you, Jesus was about helping people. And he was feeding people and he was healing people. What else? What did he do? What, in, right there, yeah. What? He was teaching people things that would liberate them, things that would help them in their life, things that would help, enable them to be victorious and successful in their Christian lives. Absolutely, that's a good one. Teaching them. Now, that's a good thing to do, isn't it? Wow. If you're a parent tonight, it, a good thing to do is to teach your children, right? That's a good thing to do. You know, we don't bury our head in the sand and we just hope that the problems go away. We actually address them and we try to teach and train our children up. Yes, sir. Okay. Okay, so when he went about doing good, he was always putting others first. He was willing to sacrifice and put himself, even at many times, behind a lot of others. And even though he had needs, he put the needs of others first. That's going about doing good. Now, we probably could have a number of things we could talk about tonight, and we could relate from the scriptures. But the fact is, he went about doing good. Hey, let me ask you, how close are you to Jesus Christ tonight? How like Jesus are you? You possess the Holy Spirit and power. You going about doing good. Number three, notice what else he did. And he kind of touches on what we already talked about. Healing all those that were oppressed of the devil. Now I'm going to take a little twist on this. And I'm going to say this. I think we could make the application here that he's rescuing souls. He's offering truth and freedom from the bondage of sin. Not only to the lost, but to the backslidden. Then we see here number four. It says God was with him. God was with him. He had the hand of God on his life. You know what? If, uh, if, if, if we are conformed to the image of Christ, here's what it's going to look like. We're going to possess the Holy Spirit and power. We're going to be going about doing good. We're going to be healing all oppressed of the devil. We're going to be reaching out, trying to witness and win people to Christ and liberate them from the bondage and enslavement of sin. And we are going to have the hand of God on our life. It's going to be obvious that something's different about us. That God is there with us. Question is how many of these qualities and characteristics are still lacking in our lives? Not just, not just these, these action ones, these visible ones, but what about those we talked about already, this meek and lowly spirit? You know, the, the, the attitude and the actions. When we think about being conformed to the image of Christ, it's not just action, it's attitude. It's both. So we're saying, okay, you know, you are who you hang around with. And we already looked at some things and said, okay, you know, how, um, 
Who are we hanging around? Well, 1 John, we looked at some examples in Scripture and said, this will give us an indication as to whether or not we're hanging around with the Lord or not. But then we started asking ourselves, wait a second, how can we determine how close we really are to Jesus? Well, that, that's determined as to whether or not we're conformed to his image. Because the closer we are to him, the more conformed to his image we really will be. Now, Paul understood that this was a process. He understood it was a process. Look at Philippians 1.6 again. You know the verse, you may be getting to know it by heart by now, but Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, we read, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So Paul understood that this was a process. That when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, that there's going to be a process for us to be conformed to his image that we're going to become, and becoming is a process. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Turn there, would you? Paul also understood that it would require dedication and determination. Not only was this a process, but it's going to demand, it's going to require dedication and determination. We mentioned this a while back, quite a while ago, whether it was in this particular lesson or some other, how when he says he began a good work in us and will perform it the day of Jesus Christ, we also correlated that with when he talks about the fact in the book of Luke, chapter 9, when he says that any man that puts his hand to the plow looking back is not worthy. The point being is God begins that work In a sense, he puts your hands on the plow, but I'm going to tell you something. He can't keep your hands on the plow. That's up to you. You start looking back, not only will that, you get off track and that plow goes south, that will go east or west along the way. But not only that, but if you're not careful, you turn enough, you're going to let go of the plow. And I'm going to tell you something. There are Christians that have let go of the plow. And this passage is not teaching that God is obligated to conform us to the image of Christ. It's not implying that he's going to finish that work in us without our help, so to speak. Oh, he'll do it, but it ain't going to be pleasant. The last thing I want is God to have to turn to Hebrews chapter 12 to get my attention and put my hands back on the plow. That's the last thing I want him to have to do. This idea that God is responsible to do all the changing in my life, we've mentioned that it is incorrect thinking. God's already given us the tools for change. The question is, will we apply the tools? Will we use the tools? I don't care if you got a hammer sitting in your toolbox. If you're trying to pound a nail in with a screwdriver, my friend, that hammer's doing you no good. And many times God has equipped us with the tools we need to accomplish what he intends, but we're not using the right tools because we're just that stubborn. Paul says over here in Philippians 3.10 that I may know him 
and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Paul recognized, as we said, that this is a process. It's a relationship. It's something that we have to be knit together with God. We have to be, we have to be um, uh, you know, you're the vine, I'm the branches, and we have to be what, he says. What's the term he uses? I just used it earlier. And I can't remember the term, so that's why I'm pretending I'm asking you. You guys don't have a clue about the Bible. <laughs> I'm up here teaching it and I can't remember it. Not grafted. Come on. Where's the Holy Spirit in this place? Okay, let's quote that passage, right? John chapter 15, verse 5. I am the vine, ye are the branches. If any man abide, there it is. We have to abide in Jesus Christ. Woo. Wow. You guys are making me look bad up here. All right. Woo. That's, that's not good, preacher. You got to get a handle on things. But anyway, Paul understood that we have to abide in Christ. Okay, there. That made me feel better already. Moving on. And so it's important that we do. So he said, listen, it's going to take dedication then. It's going to take determination then. If you want to be, let me ask you, if you're going to, uh, you're going to run a, what's that, a 5K? You're going to run a 5K run. Now let me ask you, what's it going to require? A little workout, right? A little practice. Can I tell you that if I was going to run a 5K right now, it would demand a lot of dedication and it would require a lot of determination. Do you know that the Christian life is no different? We're running a race, right? Isn't that what the Bible says? So how's come it is we think somehow that it should just come easy? It doesn't come easy. It takes effort. It takes, as the Apostle Paul recognizes here, it takes a major amount, an amount of dedication and determination. And he says that I may know him. Getting to know Jesus Christ takes effort. It's just like any relationship that you have on earth, whether it's another uh, a woman that becomes your wife, a man that becomes your husband, your own children. It takes dedication, determination. It takes an effort and it takes time. It takes energy. Listen, you don't get to know your kids sitting on a couch or going out and playing golf every week. You're going to have to spend some time with them. You don't get to know your your husband by always hanging out with the girls. Guys, you don't get to know your wife always hanging out with the guys. You got to spend some time together. And sometimes it takes effort. It takes work. Because there's no relationship on earth that doesn't require effort. If it's going to be successful. And there's no difference with the Lord Jesus. Paul says that I may know him. I want to know Jesus Christ. The closer we seek to be to Jesus, the more dedicated and determined we must be. That's just the way it works. So let me ask you this. What are some ways we get to know our family and friends? How do you get to know family and friends? Remember, we use hands in this classroom. <laughs> Anybody on this side? Because, yeah, over there. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, talking to him. Good, yeah. 
As a Baptist, you'd think that. That's correct. Cookouts. Got to always involve food. Thank you. Yes. But fellowshipping with food and family, yeah. Talking to one another. What else? Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah, you can pray together. Spend some time together. Spiritual matters. Absolutely. Getting to know family. Yeah. Okay, working, striving together, doing things together. Well, I'll tell you what, one of the breakdowns of the home is that mom and dad have their own agenda and the kids are just left in front of a television set just to take care of themselves. Hey, you guys, you do your thing, we'll do ours. I'm going to tell you something. You do a disservice to your children if indeed they're not participating in the, the work of the home. Everybody needs to pull their weight. Everybody needs to be, uh, have a piece of responsibility in the home. If you're going to do an outside project, you need to make sure everybody's involved for the most part. Get those kids involved. Make them help you. Help them to have a, learn, teach them to have a work ethic and also enjoy work, not loathe it. It's very important. But it's a family matter. You come together and it'll build relationships. There is nothing in the world that builds stronger relationships than adversity. Nothing. Nothing does. If, if your children never experience hurt and heartache, never have to push themselves, my friend, they will never learn true relationships. When you get them outside and they get blisters and their hands begin to bleed because they're out there busting their tails, trying to cut down wood or do this or do that, my friend, it'll build a camaraderie, it'll build a closeness that you've never imagined in your life. The problem is we're so soft on our kids today, we're trying to protect them from every hurt and harm that we're wrecking and ruining them. Preacher, you're a blessing tonight. Amen. That's good stuff, boy. I still remember my dad running around. He, he tells the story all the time, but I'm telling you, I learned a lot from this. We had moved into a new house. I was just 10 years old. And that side yard was filled with all kind of trees, all kind of brush, and all kind of junk. There were big old piles of old dirt in there. We'd run up and down those piles and have fun. My dad, he decided he was working 12 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm just going to tell you the truth. That's how he worked for years and years. And he'd say, all right, boys, it was mostly me and my brother, Ed, and then Jeff was a little younger, so my brother Jeff was only seven, seven and a half. I was 10. Ed was 11. He'd go back and he'd say, now, this is a sickle. And in those days, we didn't have electric or, or battery-operated stuff. And all you had was a sickle. It was kind of like that. You know, you've seen that thing with Russia, you know, that sickle that they have in their little sign. You know, if you've ever watched the Olympics. And so you get that sickle in your hand, and it goes like this and around, and you take it and you go like that, and you, you got to get a little low because you got to cut down all that brush. So you're way down here cutting that brush down, cutting it all down. He'd say, now, boys, when I get home from work, I want it from here to here cut down. It wasn't more than a couple of days, I promise you, we were wearing all kind of cloth on our hands because our hands were bleeding. I remember one time we didn't do our part because our hands were so sore and we were just hurting so bad. And we got lazy and we were supposed to have so much done. My dad came home and it was already nighttime. And I still remember him coming upstairs and going, boys, get out of bed. Like, what? He said, you, do, you got work to do. You didn't finish your job. But, but, but no buts. Get out there and get it done now. You don't sleep, you don't rest, you don't eat till you work. We got them, wrapped our hands, went out there and started cutting with that sickle in the middle of the night. You say, that was dangerous. Well, we learned a lesson. <laughs> to this day, I can tell you this. You know, I never, ever was afraid of hard work because I learned to work hard. 
I was taught to work hard. And not to complain, just get the job done. Now listen, that brought our family closer. You may think it would make them mad. I'm mad at dad. He's so unreal. He's making so, he's such a horrible dad. He's a mean dad. You know, you know what really brought it all together? My mom. Your dad's a hard worker. He's trying to teach you boys how to be hard workers. She didn't go, your dad's so mean to you. I don't know why dad does that to you guys. I'm so tired of that. Now, she may have talked to him in private. I don't know. But we never one time heard her whine, never complained, never one time took our side. And we learned one thing real quick. In this home, we work together. Everybody's on the same sheet of music, even when it means tough times. And you know what? That's a good thing. That's a good thing. And I'm not saying, you know, go buy a sickle and have your kids start cutting stuff down, but, but it probably wouldn't hurt them. None. But anyway, you know where I'm going with that, though. Now, I just did that because I'm running out of material and I didn't want to have, no, I'm teasing. I, trust me, I got plenty of stuff here, okay? <laughs> but he said that I may know him. So we talked about it real quick. We said, what are some ways we get to know our family and friends? Well, you know what? Here it is. How do we get to know the Lord Jesus Christ then? It's the same, isn't it? For every spiritual thing that God has in the Bible, do you realize that every time there's a parallel in the physical? God's always showing us something. If if The physical will picture and always relate to the spiritual. The spiritual is always pictured in the physical. And so in this case, we can look at family and we can look at relationships between husbands and wives and say, what does it take to make that relationship work? Well, guess what? It takes the same thing to make our relationship with God work. Time in the Word of God. Not just reading it, but studying it. Time in prayer. Not casually spending time on your knees, but fervently crying out to God. Time in the house of God. Not only when it's convenient but consistently and faithfully. Time and service, not only when we feel like it, but when, we requi- when, when it requires sacrifice. Time in the trenches, in the midst of the difficult times as well. We need to constantly, continually work on our relationship with the Lord. It's a battle. It takes effort, but it's worth every minute. Boy, it's worth it. Next week, we'll come back. Well, not next week. But the next week after that, we're going to talk about Peter and how he too is aware of that. And we're going to talk about how important it is that we continue to grow toward Christ. We'll look at a few things there. But listen, I wonder, you know, in, in, in our lives, you know, listen, this is the Wednesday night crowd. And I get it. I, you're here and you, you want to see God do something in your life or you wouldn't be here. I get that. I do understand that. I mean, I, I assume that at least for sure. How dedicated and determined are you to know him? What evidence is there in your life right now that proves that you are dedicated and determined that you're not going to let anything get between you and your walk with God, the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is there something or someone that you allow to get between you and Him? Maybe tonight, if that's the case, we need to just say, Lord, you know, I want you to be first. I don't want anything or anyone to stand between me getting to know you. 
I want to be more like you every day. Not only will that please the Lord, but it'll please you and all those around you. When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. Father, we come to you. We thank you now for your grace and your mercy in our lives. Thank you for